Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody today. We're going to go into worship through the form of the word this morning and uh, want to welcome our online guests, our Olmstead Falls campus and our fellas at Lorraine Correctional. If you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Joe. I'm one of the two uh, youth pastors here at our Middleburg campus. And uh, today is Youth Sunday. Can we make some noise for our teenagers this morning? Across our Olmstead Falls campus and our Middleburg Heights campus, we have roughly 110 to 120 young people serving today. Just ask that you would keep our student ministry continually in uh, your prayers, because how many of you, of you believe that God has something special for the next generation? Amen. I want to dive into things this morning. Got a lot of content, not a lot of time. If you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 1 through 11, as you're turning there, I went to Southeastern University Bible School in Lakeland, Florida. That's smack dab between Orlando and Tampa. And uh, it was my first year uh, on campus in Florida. And uh, so one of my friends, he kind of called us all into his dorm room. He had a dry erase marker and a dry erase board. We're kind of like, what the heck is about to happen right now? And he was like, guys, we need a plan for our first spring break in Florida. And we're like, oh, okay, a little less weird. And so we start like uh, just brainstorming, shooting off ideas left and right. And one of my friend speaks up and he says, well, hey guys, I have a grandpa who lives basically kind of like on the ocean almost in South Beach, Miami, uh, who might let us stay for Florida. And so we're like meeting uh, or stay in Florida for free, excuse me. Uh, and so we're like meeting uh, adjourn, um, call him because you had us at Ocean South Beach and free because we're a bunch of broke college kids, right? And so he calls his grandfather. Uh, his grandfather says uh, that we're good to go. In the next few weeks, we plan our trip uh, to, to South Beach. And uh, I'll never forget loading up uh, six guys in a five-person SUV plus all of our luggage. Uh, it's kind of a beat-up old SUV that belonged to one of my buddies. And uh, we were just kind of like a ragtag, motley crew of, of dudes. The guy driving his SUV had real long uh, dreadlocks with seashells in it. We were all like tatted up. We all had ears, our ears pierced, and we pull in to this development, and the security officer gives us this look like we don't belong there. Uh, like He's just like, y'all look broke. We were, and, uh, and y'all just don't look the part. And so, but we have the security code, so it gives us access and entrance into this development. And then what unfolds next is like one of those, Dorothy, you're not in Northeast Ohio anymore moments. Uh, we're pulling through this development, and every house is gargantuan. I'm talking like mansions, left and right, like the stuff that makes your jaws drop. Every uh, house seems to have one of those like wraparound driveways with like a fountain, this like immaculate fountain in the center. Uh, the driveways are lined by these huge gargoyles. Every car is a Bentley, a Beamer, a Maserati, an Escalade. We just come rolling through in this old school red SUV. And, and so we finally pull up to my friend's grandpa's house. And, it, and it's no different. It's a massive mansion. Uh, right beside the house is this awesome in-ground pool. Right behind the house, if you take like 12 to 15 steps, you could 
would literally take a six foot, eight foot dive right off the ocean bank wall into the ocean and be swimming with the sharks. And so we are excited. We are hyped up. We are so jacked up to be there for the week. We run in, drop our suitcases on the floor, uh, strip into our bathing suits, and we jump in the pool and we just like throw on a loud boombox speaker and we party all night long, right? Because we're living in the midst of America's kings and queens. And when you're living in the midst of royalty, sometimes you just can't contain yourself. So the next morning, my friend Rob wakes up from a call from his grandfather who woke up from a call from security, who woke up from a call from disgruntled neighbors saying that we were just being a little bit too outlandish. We were being a little bit too loud. We were being just a little bit too excessive. And so we don't have uh, proof of this, but all we know is who our neighbors in closest proximity were to us that week. And it was Grammy winner Enrique Iglesias and his longtime girlfriend, uh, Australian Open champ, Anna Kornikova, tennis player. And so uh, needless to say, they pulled up on their boat later that week and we asked their servant if we could meet them. And they didn't want to meet us for some reason, uh, probably because we kept them up all night. But when you're in the midst of royalty, you just can't contain yourself, right? I want to preach a message to you this morning called The Price of Praise. And before we dive into our story in John 12, a uh, little bit of like backdrop information on John's gospel that's really important for you all today. First off, John's gospel is like the weird cousin of the gospel. Has anybody got a weird cousin? Right? Everybody's got a weird cousin. And, and, and so John's gospel is the weird, weird cousin. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. You hear synoptic, think synonym. And then you've got John who has different stories, different details of the same stories that are shared by all gospel, uh, gospels. He gives us different details in it. And John's gospel is composed in such a way that he gives you seven miracles or sign acts that are trying to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God and to believe in him and hopefully fall in love with him. Well, in John 11, the greatest miracle yet that Jesus performed has just happened. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus has been dead for four days, showing that Jesus has power and authority over death and the grave. So where we're picking up in John 12 is right after that, and they're holding a party in Jesus' honor, because why wouldn't you? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this, though, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And catch this part. So the chief priests made a plan to kill Lazarus as well. The dude that just died, they're like, we're going to wipe him out again. What an unfortunate uh, fellow right here. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And even though... I've got a lot of content, not a lot of time. I think it's important for us to kind of take a deep breath and not only read the Bible today, but begin to see yourself in this story. Picture being at a dinner party with like 12 to 18 people you know pretty well. And picture the scent of the smells coming out of the kitchen, right? Martha's in the kitchen. She's whipping. She's doing her thing. Right? She's got the fresh fish going, uh, the spices, the herbs. You've got uh, fresh baked bread uh, and that smell. There's nothing like that smell, right? And it's hitting your nostrils, right? You've got uh, the wine chalice being passed. So there's the scent of the grapes uh, that have been crushed. And there's the the red tinge on everybody's lips as they drink wine because that was the most uh, um, familiar drink in that time outside of water that they were drinking. And then... Picture the dinner conversations happening there. Like, you're sitting with somebody who just died. Like, Lazarus, man, like, how long did it take for you to get the scent of the grave off your breath? Because it is still kicking, my friend, right? Or, or, or Lazarus, is it true? Does, do you really see the light at the end of the tunnel? Like, imagine the conversation. And all of a sudden, an unfamiliar scent permeates the room. A scent not of fish or wine or bread or olives or olive oil, but the smell of perfume. Like when a girl walks past you who has a good smelling perfume or a guy walks past you and has a good smelling cologne, this scent hits your nostrils, but it doesn't just go away. It stays and in fact, it becomes even more intense where it goes from being this, this, this good smell that you caught a whiff of, but now it's getting a little overwhelming. Like when I picture myself in this story, I think of middle school boys retreats and Axe body spray in the dorm room. And so there's this smell and it goes from being a good scent, but it's, it becomes really intense. And then your senses shift from smell to sight, and you see something excessive. You see something a little wild. You see something that arguably you've never seen before because I'm willing to bet that in our culture to this day, you've still never seen something like this before. You have a woman who's kneeling at the table washing the feet of Jesus with her perfume and her hair. So many cultural implications going on here. First up, uh, and this is, this, is just, this is just a fact about that time, the feet were looked at as the equivalent of today for like our backside. People thought that feet were disgusting. Many of you still think that feet are disgusting. Well, it was a common thought in that culture. They didn't have actual shoes, so they walked around with sandals. Their feet were always dusty and dirty. Not only that, but 
a woman would never be in this type of proximity with a man that wasn't her husband, especially in public. Not only that, but this was a lot of money. A year's worth of wages, as Judas is so keen on pointing out. This is excessive. This is too much. This starts to make people very uncomfortable at that dinner table. Chatter starts happening. If you look at all the gospel accounts, you see that it's actually not just Judas who was disgruntled in this moment. It was other people. But Judas finally, he just gets the guts. He just gets, he just gets the nerve to say what he's really thinking. And he skips the boundaries between men and women. And he skips the fact that it's washing feet at a dinner table, which is just kind of weird. And he goes to what he cares about the most. And he says, shouldn't this money be given to the poor because that's a lot of money invested in that perfume. And Jesus quickly rebukes him and says, you'll always have the poor amongst you, but you won't always have me. And he goes on to say that, in fact, Mary's exactly where Mary needs to be. Now picture this story. Think about this story. Olmstead Falls, Lorraine Correctional. See yourself in this story. And John gives us a detail about Judas that's actually like super important for us if we're ever going to learn more about who this character Judas is. And it's actually where I want to segue into talking some uh, spiritual formation with you all this morning too. See, we get this detail only given in John's gospel that not only is he treasurer or keeper of Jesus' ministry funds, but Judas is a thief. And Judas has been, you know, just taking a little bit of tax off the top for all of his hard work and duties. More on that in just a moment. But here I want to segue, and I want to talk to you real fast about a guy named James K.A. Smith. All right, I have two books up here. Maybe the cameras can kind of zoom in on these books or you can get a good shot. Uh, James K.A. Smith, he's a pretty uh, notable dude in the Christian scholarly world right now, uh, mainly because of his work over the past few decades, uh, two de uh, decade or so, uh, Desiring the Kingdom, uh, which is a phenomenal book. By the way, if you're ever looking for something to read, this book is incredible. And then he followed it up with a book called You Are What You Love. Desiring the Kingdom is actually one of the three to five books that shaped me the most to this point in my life. And in this book, um, Smith traces back to the Enlightenment period and post-Enlightenment. And he uh, really nails in on this thinker. You might have heard of him before if you're uh, keen on any philosophy. His name is Rene Descartes. And Rene Descartes, his biggest philosophical contribution was this. I think, therefore I am. And so uh, Descartes really boiled down this whole reality of human existence that I know that I exist. I know that I'm a person because I have a brain. So he kind of reduced, even if it was unintentionally, because uh, he did have, like, many think this guy was a believer. He did have some Christian backdrop. But he kind of reduced the human experience to, like, you're a head on a stick. You're no more than a brain, right? 
Well, then Smith takes this thinking of Descartes, he traces it along a few centuries, and, uh, and, and, he, and he forms it through like Christian thinking, and he says that Christians know better than to think that our thoughts are what matters most. So we have this really big word in Christianity, it's all about our beliefs, right? And, and, and that's scriptural, right? Like you're supposed to believe in the Son of God, and you're supposed to believe in the Bible. But he says that it's actually not telling the whole story of how we're shaped and formed, because we're not primarily thinking beings, we're not even primarily believing beings. This is the argument of Smith's whole book. He says, to be human is to be an affectionate, affectionate being. In essence, to be human is to love. Beyond being a thinking being, beyond being a believing being, you are a lover. So he says we actually need to go back to this dude, Augustine, uh, who every Christian thinker has been influenced by at some point. And Augustine had a quote, ready for it? He said, my weight is my love, and by it I am carried wheresoever I am carried. Let me put that a little simpler. The trajectory of my life will follow my love. Beyond being a believing being or a thinking being, friend, you and I are lovers. And our life will follow our love. Now this is very, very important. Out of all things I've preached in the past five years or so, I really believe this is top three of most important messages, most important things. It says everything about our spiritual formation. Your life's gonna follow your love. See, Smith makes the, makes the argument that whatever it is you love the most is actually what you worship. And whatever you worship, you will become like. Now, I want to show you this and how this plays out in the Bible. Super important stuff. I really hope you're locked in, paying attention. Balcony, cross campus, everywhere. I hope you're paying attention to this. Next time we see Judas, we've got to pop over to a different gospel. But let me show you something here. Matthew 26, 14 through 15. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And many of you know what happens next. Judas finds Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and he hands over the savior of the world for a mere 30 pieces of silver. If you've never contemplated the reality of Judas' decision, I'm really asking that you do that today. Think about this. How does Judas go from seeing Lazarus resurrect from death to life in moments, sell the Savior for a money bag? 
or discard even that miracle? How can Judas spend three years with Jesus, watching him perform miracles, watching, watching him perform signs and wonders, hearing his teaching, seeing him confront the uh, hip, hypocritical Pharisees, watching him love people? How could he take that three years of experience and dwindle it down to a decision where he hands the savior of the world away. Well, I think it has a lot to do with what not only I just talked about, but what Jesus says in one of his most prolific teachings in Matthew 6, 24. See, Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money or God and mammon. That was the actual word. You can't be devoted to two masters. You'll end up loving one and hating the other. You'll end up being devoted to the one and despising the other. Meaning this, the weight of your love will carry you towards the one you love the most. You can't serve two gods, only one. As I read the story, as I have for years now, as I see this figure Judas and the key little bit that we get about him from John's gospel, the story begins, begins to become more clear. Judas doesn't make an on-the-whim decision to hand over the Savior for silver. Judas simply has an unchecked idol in his journey all along. Judas loves money. He likes to take a little bit from the top. He likes to think nobody's looking. He likes to, you know, uh, whatever, put it in his pocket so nobody sees. But all the while, this idol is gaining more and more of his affection to the point where in a pivotal decision, he decides to sell the Savior for silver. Spiritual formation. See, idolatry, simply put, is anything that goes unsurrendered to the Lord. Money is actually the easy one to notice. The, bi the big ones that we all notice, money, sex, power, those are the easy ones to notice. But did you know that anything can become an idol? Anything. Money, sex, power, your car, your clothes, your house, your spouse, your kids, a platform, a microphone, right? Even your bad ideology or theology can become an idol, Anything really can become an idol. An idol is simply anything that doesn't get surrendered. Because it might not have your affection now, but if you let it linger long enough, it'll eventually steal your heart. See, it's easy to see Judas's, but let me show you something else. John 12, write out our story, one through 11, Get down to the bottom of John 12. I want you to see something that's so important and so fascinating. You ready? It says this in verse 42 and 43. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Religious leaders believed in Jesus. 
synagogue leaders, believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than they loved praise from God. Do you see it? Do you see the conundrum? Do you see the paradox? Yes, they believed, but friend, who did they love? I'm aiming past your thoughts today about God. I'm even aiming past your belief about sound doctrine and good theological statements. I'm aiming to ask you the question of questions. Who do you love? Because whatever you love will will determine the rest of everything. Judas loves money. So he gives his life over to money. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the synagogue leaders, they believe the right thing. And yet while they believe the right thing, it doesn't seem to matter because their life follows their love for the praise of people. See, money, sex, and power, those are the easy ones to point out. The church is actually pretty great at pointing those ones out. You know what's hard? That little lingering people-pleasing thing that so many of us deal with. That little lingering, I'm too afraid to form my own beliefs, to take the chance, to take a risk. And so we shrink into the background. All the while, we don't even realize it, but that is forming us spiritually. Your idol friend might just be how other people think of you. Because it was for the synagogue leaders. Well, I want to draw your attention to one more figure in the story. We actually have to do kind of like a full character analysis to see it. It's this, her particular issue doesn't pop up in the story, but she does. So I think we should look at her. See, synagogue leaders, praise of people, fear of people, Judas, love for money. And then you've got this woman who, as I've read the New Testament more and more, I find myself identifying with her and her struggle just about more or as much as any character in the Bible. It's the woman we find in the kitchen named Martha. See, I love that in John 12, you find Martha where you always find Martha. Martha is in the kitchen getting her Betty Crocker on. Martha loves to cook, she loves to clean, she probably loves the checklist, Uh, she's responsible. When it comes to doers, Martha Martha wears this well, if you remember this old phrase, get her done, right? Martha is that type of person. she's, She's gifted, she's responsible, she's hospitable, she cares. But sometimes, even her gift gets her into trouble, Such as, not in our story, but a different story, when Martha starts to get a little bit frustrated with her sister Mary. Joe's version of the Bible, uh, Martha looks at Jesus and says, hey, tell Mary to get off her butt and help me do some dishes. To which Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about many things, but Mary, she's concerned about one thing, and in fact, the thing that Mary's concerned about is actually the most important thing, and it will not be taken away from her. So you find Martha, once again, in John's Gospel, and I'm not saying that somebody didn't have to do it, but I just think it's ironic. You still see Martha in the kitchen doing her thing. See, 
Martha, I think, symbolizes what a lot of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, especially us who have a heart for ministry, whether full-time vocational or serving in the local church, but I felt like I needed to call this one out today. See, Martha's idol, I think, is this. She'd rather do for God than be with God. See, there's many of people who go throughout their whole Christian life and church experience, and they're really busy, and they really do, do a lot with their gifts, with their platform, whatever, but they never take the time to get in proximity to his presence. And we can miss so much, or we can start judging other people by what they do and don't do. But then, you turn your focus back to Mary, and friend, there was something about Mary over the past five to seven years that has captivated me. Something about Mary that I just can't stop preaching about. Something about Mary that I see in her something that's so different than myself. You can always find Mary at the same place. Whenever she pops up in the scripture, she's at the same exact place all the time. For instance, you turn to Luke 10, verse 39, and it says this. It says that she had a sister called Mary, Martha did, and who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So we see Mary pop up in Luke's gospel, and where is she? She's at the feet of Jesus. She's a student or a disciple. So she listens to the Lord. Well, that's not the only time Mary shows up. In John 11, right before you get to John 12, uh, when Lazarus died, Mary was there. And listen to what John says, John eleven thirty two. 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary knows how to go to Jesus with her grief, with her sorrow, with her pain, with her remorse, with her questions. God, if you just would have been here but she's at the same place at his feet. And then Mary, walking on the other side of God's promise. John 12, three. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. There's something about Mary that she understands a posture called praise. You can always find Mary at the feet of Jesus. You can find Mary at the feet of Jesus in her questioning, in her learning, in her doubts, in her panic, in her confusion, and in her praise. Onlookers, skeptics, doesn't she know? Judas, doesn't she know? How much it costs. It's too expensive. It costs too much. This money could have been used for the poor. This money could be used to help people. This is, this is excessive. This is gross. We're at the dinner table. Why, Mary, are you doing this thing? But she doesn't understand. Mary knows how much it costs. She bought it. Mary knows something that Judas doesn't know. And I believe that Mary understands something that oftentimes we miss. See, it didn't matter how expensive. You can't put a price on praise because whatever you worship will eventually cost you everything. You can't put a price on praise 
Whatever you worship will cost you everything in the end. Write it out in the scriptures. Do you see what happened to Judas? He worshiped money. Where did his life's direction go? It followed his love towards money. And money ends up being the thing that takes his life. Well, what about the Pharisees, the, the synagogue leaders? They missed their moment because even though some of them believe in Jesus, your life doesn't follow your beliefs. Your life follows your love. And they missed their moment. Whatever you worship will eventually cost you everything. You'll give everything to whatever it is that steals your heart. It just so happens that Mary chose the only one that could truly love her and satisfy her in return. Choose the one who loves you more. Choose the one who loves you more. So I left out a detail intentionally in this story. One of the cultural things that would have really thrown people off. And as I come to a close, I want to point your attention towards this. So in that culture, it was custom for women to wear head coverings. We see this even riding itself out in the New Testament early church. Paul's addressing the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 4, 5. This is just a snippet of a whole passage. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered disgraces his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head, for it is one and the same thing as having a shaved head. In that culture, at that time, 2,000 years ago, head coverings were a big deal. If you ever watched The, the, the Chosen, I think they do a really good job of, of portraying this. Anytime a, a man enters a woman's presence who's not her husband, she quickly throws on her head covering. It was happening in religious gatherings in the early church. It, it was a cultural norm. And yet, not only is Mary at the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume, at his feet at a dinner table, pouring out lavish amounts of perfume that costs a ton of money, she's also washing his feet with her hair. She's breaking cultural norms. She, she's doing something excessive. She's doing something outlandish. She's doing something that could get her in a lot of trouble. She's doing something that could get the security called on her. But Mary understands something, that when you're in the midst of royalty, sometimes you just can't contain yourself. When you're in the midst of royalty, sometimes you just got to go a little ex extra. Sometimes you just got to do something a little excessive. See, Song of Songs says this, 112, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. Mary knew who the king was. She knew she was in the midst of royalty. I think somebody in this room should give God some praise right now. When you're in the midst of royalty, you just can't contain yourself. As we close today, remember, this is, this is a gut check message. Your life will follow your love. Your life will follow your love. Our idolatry leads us to a place of brokenness as it should.
Because in our idols, we realize that we choose things that don't love us in return. But it's in that broken spot where we can turn our focus and gaze back towards Jesus, which I'm gonna ask us to do right now. Our prayer team is coming forward. Our altar response team full of students and adults today. And I really wanna ask you, challenge you, when's the last time that you give Jesus the praise that he deserved? When's the last time you really checked your heart and seen, man, I've been doing the church thing, but, but, but is my life following my love? And if so, what, what do I really love? Let's pray today and ask God to search our hearts. Jesus, Jesus, the weight of our love is what will determine the trajectory of our life. Lord, don't let us miss moments with the King of Kings to acknowledge you for who you are. Strip us of our idols this morning. Replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, oh God. Let us come alive again in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're gonna kind of switch things up a little bit on Youth Sunday. As I said, our prayer team's in the front, students and adults, and um, we had a student write a song about being beautifully broken a few months before our winter retreat, and when I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just absolutely incredible. And she's gonna play this song, you're gonna be able to sing along with her, but even more than singing, for some of you, you need to come to a decisive moment in your journey where you've already actually walked through the door and made the step to make Jesus your Lord, but you need to let go of some idols. You need to allow God to strip you of some things. I just wanna say that this altar is open today, and you are welcome to come, get prayer, or find a place by yourself to really put into the practice the things that we've talked about this morning. So let's worship together.